Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're visiting the sailboat known as the Golden Rule today, talking to their chief publicist and organizer, Helen Jacquard, but we'll get you warmed up with snippets of two videos linked on northernspiritradio.org, the first from the documentary Making Waves, The Rebirth of the Golden Rule, and we'll go straight from that into the intro to the Golden Rule Project promo, and then we'll talk to Helen. Here we are on the morning of February 3rd, 1946, on this far-off Pacific paradise over 4,000 miles from San Francisco. There are only 167 human beings here, 60 of them children. From the coconut palms, the pandanus and breadfruit trees, they get food and the material for their dwellings, of which there are only 26. They depend on their own arts and crafts. They are proudly self-sufficient. They are astonishingly intelligent. They are a gentle and lovable people. Yes, life is simple and beautiful on Bikini Atoll until today, February 3rd, 1946, when there enters into Bikini Lagoon a fateful thing, a grim, huge symbol of civilization in its most terrifying form. Arriving is Commodore Ben H. Wyatt, United States Navy, with a startling request. Will the people of Bikini abandon their paradise? so that the United States can use it for a certain experiment with the fantastic, the incredible thing called the atomic bomb. to show our resistance to militarism. One of the five principles, founding principles of Veterans for Peace is to end the arms race and ultimately seek the elimination of nuclear weapons. This boat is an icon for that because it represents a different way of thinking about how to do protests. Just like that, okay, you can go ahead and rock it. Really, it's a dream come true for me. It's a dream come true to be able to be a part of this movement that began before I was born. August 6th, 1945, the first atomic bomb ever to be used against people was dropped on Hiroshima. Both of those clips we just listened to about the Golden Rule sailboat are linked on northernspiritradio.org. So I think you've probably got a good idea of what we're talking about today. In that last one from the Golden Rule Project promo video, it included the voices of Will Van Natta, then skipper of the Golden Rule, Barry Ladendoff of the Board of Directors of the Veterans for Peace, and finally, Helen Jacquard, who is joining us today for Spirit in Action. Helen, thanks so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. My pleasure, Mark. Nice to see you. Tell me again exactly where you are. 
Oh, well, right at the moment, we're in Chesapeake City, which is part of the C&D Canal, the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal. We left yesterday from Harvard to Grace, Maryland, and tomorrow we'll be in Philadelphia. You're moving right along. This is all under sail. You're doing this, or do, is there a motor in there, too? Oh, there's always a motor. It would be impossible for us to have an ambitious speaking schedule without an engine. <laughs> and when you're going across the ocean, you know, like if you're going over to Hawaii and that, is that under sail or is that motor? That's mostly under sail. The biggest reason we run the engine when we're crossing the ocean is to keep our batteries charged or to come out of the doldrums if there's no wind. Again, you're traveling on the Veterans for Peace Golden Rule Peace Boat. You have to say all those words together to specify it, or is there another Golden Rule Peace Boat? Or, <laughs> I mean, because Golden Rule was its own thing back in the day, but became the Peace Boat. Right, yeah, and we refer to the faith-based Golden Rule all the time, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The only Golden Rule Peace Boat is the one we have, I like to specify Veterans for Peace only because it was two chapters of Veterans for Peace in Northern California that made this whole project happen. And along with some Quakers that knew about the history of the Golden Rule and wooden boat lovers and just people that like to get their hands dirty in a community project. We're going to go through all the details of it, but typically how big is, how many people are traveling on the Golden Rule? What's the crew and uh, traveling capacity when you're moving along? Typically three or four. There's times when we choose to, you know, free up some space and have only three people aboard. Sometimes, like when you're crossing the ocean, you must have four people. So someone can sleep at some time? That's right, yes. And so if you and Jerry are on there, that means one other person or two other people, true? Well, it doesn't quite work that way. From the very beginning, we've had a shore support RV. And since Jerry and I lived for nine and a half years in an RV, part of that time was being shore support for the Golden Rule. Usually for the first five years when we were up and down the West Coast, Usually, Jerry was the one driving the RV and I was crew. But right now, neither of us is crewing, mostly. I hop on as needed if I don't have enough crew. But typically, now, the two of us are in the RV and we have three or four crew on the boat. That's good to know. So our listeners for Spirit in Action maybe haven't quite latched on to what the idea of the golden rule is. Before we talk about the history, let's talk about this incarnation of the Golden Rule. The boat was raised up from under the water and was restored. And why are you taking it around the U.S. and the world as you are? Well, I wouldn't say we're going around the world. We maybe thought of that before, but now I'm thinking it's not a great idea. But we're, we're sailing for a nuclear-free world and a peaceful, sustainable future. When the Golden Rule was being rebuilt, they had a vision of sailing the Golden Rule throughout all of the navigable waters of the United States to talk about radiation. And so it's an educational mission. It's not what it was in 1958, which was more of a protest mission. 
it's not like we never do what you might think of as protesting, but it's a whole different kind of thing. We don't risk arrest and we don't risk seizure of the boat now. And that risk happened when you went into those places where you're forbidden going, the Coast Guard and so on. Would you be willing to be arrested if it helped a nuclear-free world? Not while I'm project manager of the Golden Rule. I can't do what I need to do from jail. As a chemical engineer and a computer programmer, why did you become project manager? Just a promotion? No, not at all. And in fact, I make a whole lot less money now than I did then. No, it was because the Golden Rule was getting ready to sail to Southern California. And as a computer programmer, I put up the web page based crew application form. And of course, I tested it. Well, a month later, I was totally shocked to find out that they were thinking of me as crew. I said, I've never even been on a sailboat. What are you thinking? <laughs> and they said, well, we're going to have three other good sailors aboard. That's not what we need you for. We need a public speaker. I said, well, I've never done that either. <laughs> and they said, you'll be just fine. You're who we want. So off I went on the maiden voyage of the rebuilt Golden Rule. Wow. Well, I want to cover all of that, in particular how you've been traveling the last few, actually several years at this point. But the original Golden Rule boat that went out was headed over to try and prevent nuclear testing, atmospheric testing specifically. Talk about the history of how that boat came along, what it did. So it started in 1945 with the development of nuclear weapons and the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the first captain of the Golden Rule was in, uh, he was a command, a Navy commander, and he was near Pearl Harbor when those bombs were dropped. And he quit his commission a month before he could have gotten full retirement pay out of protesting of the dropping of the bombs. So later, from 1946, you know, right after World War II to 1958, the United States used 67 nuclear weapons in the Marshall Islands on this small island community all spread out throughout the Pacific Ocean. And one of those tests, Castle Bravo, contaminated the entire island chain and some others besides. So... People were really upset about what happens when a nuclear explosion happens. It produces elements that don't exist in nature. And strontium-90 that displaces calcium in the body was getting into baby's teeth and bones and mother's milk and cow's milk. So people were really upset about the radiation that everybody was absorbing, trying to stop the atmospheric nuclear weapons testing and when they figured out that their protests and their letters to the editor and contacting Congress and the president wasn't doing any good, that's when they decided to buy a boat and try and just put their lives in the way of the nuclear weapons testing in the Marshall Islands. They made it as far as they sailed out of Los Angeles and they made it as far as Honolulu, resupplied and were headed out into the Pacific Ocean 
to get to the Marshall Islands. And they didn't get very far before the Coast Guard brought them back twice, it turns out. The crew spent two months in jail. And another boat, during the cruise trial, another boat picked up the baton and they did go into the Marshall Islands. So the protests increased dramatically. They now said not only stop the A&H bomb testing, they also said free the crew of the Golden Rule. And that helped bring about the political will for President Kennedy to sign the Limited Test Ban Treaty of 1963. And the tactic of using a boat to try to stop nuclear testing was what spawned the founding of Greenpeace. Who was on this original boat that you said the crew? And at one point I was envisaging, you know, maybe seven or eight or nine people, but this was a, a maximum of four. Correct. So the first four was Burt Bigelow, Bill Huntington, George Willoughby, and David Gale that you don't hear about much. They went out about 800 miles. They ran into a gale and it broke a piece of the mainsail and they returned. David Gale in the process got so seasick, he just about died. So he was replaced by Orion Sherwood. So there was five of them. And then, of course, um, they get to Hawaii and they make a second attempt out of Honolulu. At that point, Jim Peck was one of the crew. So there were really six crew members that had been on the Golden Rule in 1958. And where did they come from? Were they all veterans? Uh, No, they were all, all but Ori and Sherwood were Quakers, though. I'm not sure about Jim Peck. He was just a civil rights activist who... When they decided that despite the fact that one of their crew was not in town, they were going to take off again. They grabbed Jim Peck and said, come on with us. We need you. And he got on board. That's way back in the 1950s, 58 or so in that case. So how long did the Golden Rule continue to sail anywhere? Did it stop in 58? Well, for protest purposes, yes. She was sold into private hands and was in a series of families until she was floating around in Northern California and sank in a gale. And the next day, she was pulled up into the boatyard of Leroy Zerling, where ultimately she was rebuilt. The whole effort to do that, it took several years to rebuild her, to get her seaworthy again, so to speak. Who was doing that? That was Veterans for Peace overseeing all of that, right? Well, yes and no. So Leroy, the boatyard owner, acted as project manager. Veterans for Peace provided most of the volunteer power. There were two hired shipwrights, a lot, a lot of community support, volunteers from all kinds of walks of life. So like Chuck DeWitt was the restoration coordinator, Leroy's best friend, Freddie Champagne, one of the main first fundraisers from another Veterans for Peace chapter was part of it. So it was a really big group effort. And how early did you, Helen Jackard and Jerry Condon, when did you get involved with the project? We heard about the boat in 2011 at a Veterans for Peace national convention, or no, sorry, regional convention. And so we drove from Ukiah to Samoa, where the 
golden rule was on Humboldt Bay and just took a look. And first time we saw her, she was a pretty big wreck and looked too small to even go into an ocean. And then in 2013, same thing, but she was beginning to take shape. Then 2015, the call went out to finish the in time for the Peace National Convention that year. So that was pretty cool. We then, we were living in an RV at the time, and we pulled our RV into the boatyard and just got started. Well, when you say you got started, you were working on it as well? Yeah. So this was February, and we didn't launch until June, and then we took off out of Humboldt Bay in July. So yes, when I got there, I started just sanding, painting, and varnishing. Pretty soon, I was making the seat cushions and the beds. And then I made the mast boots, and it wasn't too long after that. They were planning the, the big launch party where 400 people came from all over the country to see the launch of the Golden Rule, and it became fairly clear that I needed to be involved with you know, organizing work. That turned out to be a good thing. I had no experience as an organizer or a, a project manager, but it was such a critical need that I went into that role and and stayed there except for all the other things that needed to be done. <laughs> what do you mean except for? <laughs> it sounds like you don't want to go through that list. <laughs> no, um, but, you know, could you send me about six clones and then I'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> so, again, this is for a nuclear-free world that originally the golden rule sails and, and is, is trying to do that. And this is not only for nuclear weapon-free. Is this nuclear-free general? Nuclear-free general. So you have to start from the beginning. The damage that's been done to the land and the people from uranium mining. There are 15,000 abandoned uranium mining uh, mines in 15 western states. So it starts there, and then the milling and the processing, where you turn the yellow cake uranium into uranium hexafluoride using hydrofluoric acid, one of the most, well, probably the strongest acid that there is. And then you turn it into a gas and put it through the centrifuges. All that's the same process, whether you're talking about nuclear weapons or nuclear energy. Um, nuclear energy was actually started as a way to promote the nuclear technology so that there would be enough, you know, robust nuclear industry to carry on nuclear weapons. And the whole Atoms for Peace campaign was actually a whole propaganda campaign to get people to buy into the fact that, you know, there would be free, unlimited energy for forever and with no consequences whatsoever. And it was just a total fabrication. And so, yeah. And then you've got the shared problem of waste. And also the bylaws and mission statement for the golden rule were written in the wake of Fukushima. Right. So I'm curious where your perspective on this comes in. Again, you were a chemical engineer 
at one point. I was actually taught physics at university level. So maybe nuclear physics is really closer to me than it is to you. But the chemical effects of nuclear radiation, I mean, Madame Curie and so on, it's for, we're both covering the fields. Did you have any concerns about nuclear energy back when you were a chemical engineer? Well, I had my first clue about I didn't think it was a good idea was when I was in high school and reading about subatomic particles. But I didn't have enough information at that time to make a super logical decision. It was just, hmm, this didn't sound right. There was a while that I was excited about fusion as opposed to fission also in high school, but I didn't really put much thought into it until... Later, when, you know, Chernobyl started and then I started learning about, you know, the problems with nuclear energy. And so it it wasn't something that was part of my career thinking at all. It was just personal starting to be aware on the periphery and then getting involved with the Golden Rule Project. It really cemented everything for me. And boating, likewise, you didn't have much experience in And I'm just wondering if you are susceptible to seasickness. Only if I'm looking at a screen. So like most people, if your eyes and your ears don't match up well, then you tend to get sick because your brain gets confused and your inner ear is confused. So when I get seasick, which is occasional, not very often, but it's not doesn't have huge consequences. And when that's over with, then I just, you know, sit up on deck and look out at the horizon like you're supposed to, and I'm fine. I think that in part you were led into this because of your partnership and now marriage to Jerry Condon. Uh, he was a veteran. Where was he a veteran? What was his history? Jerry um, jumped before he was drafted and ended up in the Army uh, Special Forces medic training. As such, he was interacting with a lot of people coming home from Vietnam and understood, therefore, the atrocities that the people he was talking to either saw or did in Vietnam and the senseless nature of that war. And he decided he couldn't participate in it. He started speaking out against it publicly. That got him busted back down into regular army, and they started ordering him to prepare to deploy to Vietnam. And he started refusing all orders. Ultimately, during the early stages of his court-martial, he walked off base and never returned. Then he went to Sweden and Canada, where he was a big part of the American Deserters Committee there and came back to the United States on a 50-city speaking tour talking about the Ford versus Carter amnesty program for deserters. They were all willing to pretty much forgive the draft dodgers, but they were, you know, Carter had a much better plan for what to do with deserters, and so he was speaking out about that. My understanding is that on the 50th city that he was supposed to be in, he was double booked. He showed up in one place and the army showed up in the other. (laughs) To grab him. Possibly, yeah. Um, They reduced his jail sentence from 10 years to two years and ultimately dropped it all together. 
my theory about that is that you don't want to make a martyr out of somebody like Jerry. He's too much of a loudmouth. <laughs> well, and it appears that he also has a bit of integrity, which, you know, if you're going to put someone in jail, at least have something some, something so that the crap sticks to them when you throw it at them. And evidently, Jerry's kind of short on that. Jerry has a huge amount of integrity and ethics, morals, is always thinking about what's right, how will other people receive messages, kindness, politeness. He's, that's just who he is. I think it comes from his Catholic background, which, you know, he's a Reformed Catholic, as in that's not who he is anymore. But nonetheless... You know, deciding that you're going to always do the right thing is really important to him. What about you, Helen Jackard? Were you a Catholic too? Did you get morality out of somewhere? Or is this just you fell in with a good crowd? (laughs) I don't have any religious background whatsoever. So I guess I'll just have to say I must have fallen in with a good crowd. My family was not activists. I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a peace activist. After 1973, when I graduated from high school and went to college and there were no protests there, and I was like, oh, okay, this is all said and done with, no hippies, no nothing. I thought, okay, well, I'll just buckle down and do my studies. You know, and then all these years later, I'm out dancing And I meet this guy, Jerry Condon, and I ask him, you know, I like the way he dances, and I ask him what he does, and he says he's a peace activist. And I said, you can do that? Just incredulous, because I had not any idea. I read the paper every day. I had not any idea that there was such a thing. Isn't it amazing how the news very easily, by simply ignoring, can eclipse and make you believe in the non-reality of something? And so you've been doing a lot of publicity about the Veterans for Peace Golden Rule Peace Boat. You're getting the word out there, and I saw on your website, and folks, that website is VFP, that's Veterans for Peace, vfpgoldenruleproject.org. On that website, you can find links, you can find news stories, but the general media isn't covering this very much, or is it? I mean, maybe you're kept really busy as their promotional person, as their coordinator, as their organizer, as their spokesperson. I am being kept more and more busy. We had a great article in the Baltimore Sun. From the time we started the Great Loop Voyage, this 11,000-mile voyage around the eastern half of the United States, We've had about 50 different media coverages, some of them fairly large. So, yeah, it's starting to stick, and people are starting to take notice. What date do you date the publicity from the act? Well, when did the first run that you did with the boat, I think on the West Coast, when did you start that? When did you set sail? We set sail in July of 2015. And we went up and down the West Coast for five years before Trump and Kim were threatening each other's countries with nuclear annihilation. And that's when we set sail for Hawaii, where we spent nearly two years with the intention of finally making it to the Marshall Islands. But then COVID hit and we couldn't go to other countries or do any public presentations 
So we brought the golden rule back to California and thought about now what? Well, we mostly stayed put for the next year while COVID was raging. We went to San Diego and back, but we had to cancel three of our in-person events because of COVID. But eventually we decided to do that dream and bring the golden rule throughout all the eastern waters of the United States. Part of what happened in this period after you started in 2015, 2016, the end of it, Donald Trump is elected president. Did the lead up to that, did his election, did that throw water on the project? Did it energize it? How did that affect you? That made people that were already aware of the dangers of nuclear weapons get more energized because he was saying things like, well, you know, we have these nuclear weapons. Why aren't we using them? Now, he wasn't the first president that considered using nuclear weapons and threatened even to use them. But he didn't seem to be quite as controllable. You know, that was sort of his whole deal is I'm not part of the system. And so it seemed like there could have been an accidental or intentional use of nuclear weapons under President Trump that didn't seem to be quite so much in other presidencies. So that energized those that were already aware. It was the Ukraine war that's been energizing the general public because they, th they hear things like, well, you know, Russia is threatening to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine if they think they're going to lose this war. So a lot of people are going, you know, at the end of the presentation, that's the first question they ask is, what about Ukraine? Before the Ukraine war started, it was, what about Iran or what about North Korea? So we've had to put a lot of thought into how to respond to the general public on all these issues. What kind of answer do you give them if they ask, you know, how about Ukraine? What do we do there, you know? Well, the first thing to do is to get a ceasefire negotiated so that you can bring about a truce and an end of the war so that we can stop the fighting before it turns nuclear. We also try to help them understand that this didn't start a year ago. This started long before, and it started possibly with the march of NATO towards Russia's borders. And it also started with the placement of U.S. nuclear weapons in five other European countries, including Turkey, where we had removed them in order to resolve the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, yeah, the whole problem has a long history, and we need to recognize that. But I think we also need to recognize that this culture that we have of aggression and war-making is behind all of it. And so instead of the first thing you think of is let's nuke them, let's think about why are we being threatened and what is it that the United States wants, what are our real interests, and what are the interests of the countries that we're feeling like we should be in conflict with. So there's, you know, U.S. interests typically means the extractive industries, oil, gas, gold. Uranium. <laughs> uranium, right, of which we're still buying, I think, some of that from Russia or former Soviet Union countries. 
And then you think about why do we need these things? Well, we need these things because the U.S. public demands it and has enough money to buy what's used with those cars and electronics and solar systems. You know, we use a lot of things that are manufactured from extracted industries. And so it's in the public interest, uh, supposedly, to do all this marketing, therefore extraction, manufacturing, waste production, you know, it's the whole system is encouraging the United States aggression in order to obtain what is perceived that the people want to have. Folks, we're speaking today with Helen Jackard. She is the project manager for the Veterans for Peace Golden Rule Peace Boat. They originated, uh, actually, the raising of the boat happened back around 2010, I believe. Worked on it for several years, launched in 2015, and they continue to travel all around the United States. Their website is vfpgoldenruleproject.org. That link, though, is on northernspiritradio.org, which is generally easier to remember. Three words, northernspiritradio.org. Come and you'll find the links to the Golden Rule Peace Boat. Also, our guests from the past 18 years that we've been doing this, finding people who are helping to make this world a better place. And certainly the Golden Rule folks, Helen, her husband, Jerry, are amongst the vital parts of making that happen. Come to NordenSpiritRadio.org. Post a comment on this interview. You can donate to support us, but please go to VFP Golden Rule Project and support them, too. They need some funds to do this. I have a feeling you live pretty simply, don't you? Well, we do, especially when we're on a trip like this. The RV uses very little energy except for gasoline to get us from place to place. And because we're doing this 11,000 miles in over a year, our daily consumption isn't any more than anybody else as far as that's concerned. But yeah, we've got a small propane heater and our tank of um, water lasts us for a week as do our holding tanks. And we don't have to plug our RV in because we've got two solar panels on top. And I do, you know, cook at least a couple meals every day. So, you know, we're not eating out in restaurants a lot. And, you know, the RV, it's, it's only 20 feet long, but it carries a portable office and it carries the T-shirts and the, and the literature and the projection equipment for when we need to show the film. So, you know, it's a pretty small space for two people and all of that. And folks, also keep in mind that this interview is going out to all the stations where we're syndicated, where Norton Spirit Radio programs, both Song of the Soul and Spirit in Action, are syndicated. And please remember to support your local community radio stations. I'm quite sure that Helen is aware of which media are interested and less interested. Uh, certainly the big names have a lot of reach, a lot more ears listening, but your community radio station has freedom to share news and music that you don't get elsewhere. And speaking of music, I noticed on your website, again, the VFP org. 
four songs related to the golden rule. Could you talk about those? I actually didn't listen to them yet, but I want to include at least one of them in this program. Tell me about those songs. Well, I can really pretty much tell you about one song because it's the one that I love, and it's the first one. It's um, The Ballad of the Phoenix and the Golden Rule by Michael Stern, who lives in Seattle. And it was ready for us in a recording form as we were launching the Golden Rule. And it kind of goes like, we didn't know when we set sail in 58, we'd all end up in jail. And I've been called worse than a fool for sailing on the Golden Rule. And then it goes on. And the sister boat, the Phoenix, mention a bit about that, if you would. While the Golden Rule was in port in Honolulu and the crew was facing trial, um, along came another boat, the Phoenix of Hiroshima, captained by Dr. Earl Reynolds. And Dr. Reynolds was a, a PhD kind of doctor. He'd been studying the effects of radiation on children in Hiroshima from 1952 to 55. And at that time, he had a similar boat uh, commissioned that was handmade, no power tools whatsoever, 50 feet. Ours, ours is 39 overall. And his dream was to sail it around the world. And his family said, we're coming to. So from 1955 to 58, three years, they were just finishing up their trip around the world. We're in Honolulu on their way to Hiroshima, where their home was. And they encountered the crew of the Golden Rule, and they went to the trial and listened to them, and they got really inspired. Now, this was Dr. Reynolds, his wife, Barbara, and their daughter, Jessica, and son, Ted, and a Japanese crew member who'd lost his brother to the bombing at Hiroshima. And it was Nick Mikami that was part of the push to go to take the baton and go into the Marshall Islands. And Jessica tells me that they did see a nuclear weapons flash as they were headed out of the Marshall Islands in their boat, the Phoenix. Now, they went on to do a lot of other actions. They sailed to Russia to talk with them about getting rid of nuclear weapons. And then they sailed into North Vietnam during the Vietnamese War or the American war in Vietnam, twice. So they remained kind of an uh, activist boat for quite a while. Eventually, their boat was being towed up the Sacramento River, and I guess it ran into a rock and got a hole in it. Well, they put on a bilge pump and pumped out the water as it was seeping in, and it was they were headed to Lodi for repairs. And ended up in the North Mokalemni River. And eventually the solar-powered bilge pump gave out and the Phoenix sank also in 2010. So both boats sank in Northern California in 2010 in separate incidents. On the same day that the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons language was approved by a vote of 122 to 1 countries, the golden rule was sailing on top of the phoenix. On top, you mean, <laughs> when you say on top of, you mean above it. It was underwater. Okay. 
<laughs> I thought you might have stacked the boats up, too. Oh, no, no, no. The Phoenix is <laughs> under 25 feet of water. I find it actually kind of remarkable that something that is such a piece of history was allowed to go underwater. I mean, it took special private effort to bring up the golden rule. And maybe the next attempt will be with the Phoenix. The problem is the Phoenix was in brackish water and she was down there for what? When we visited, it was 2017. So she was, she's been underwater, you know, since 2010 and, and has been rotting. So when we were there in 2015 or 17, she was already, you bring up a piece of the plank, which a diver did, and it was just in horrible shape. There's not much really left of it. So she'll never be restored. It, you know, if somebody wanted to bring her up, even just trying to raise her would probably break her apart to the point that you wouldn't have anything left. They really wanted to. Jessica Reynolds really tried hard to get a, a whole fund together, a fundraising effort. It was would have taken about, I don't know, well, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but she was thinking she could probably raise that money and raise the Phoenix as well. And there's a great movie about the Phoenix and trying a promotional film about the history of the Phoenix and the Golden Rule and trying to raise her. And it's on phoenixofhiroshima.org if it's still online, which I think it is. Really a nice movie. And we've shown it a few times, but I don't think the Phoenix is ever going to be raised. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm a little bit, I'm more than a little bit curious about the reception you get. Again, you started this travel with the Golden Rule back in 2015, and a year and a half later or so, Donald Trump was elected. The politics in the country and the outspoken voices who are willing to yell you down and I think who would be very oppositional to your point of view, I think they rose up and they felt a considerable agency in that time. I don't know if that's been your experience. You started on the West Coast. You've been going through the middle of the United States and now on the East. Have you had positive reception? Who's been showing up? Have you had hecklers show up? Are you changing minds? We haven't had any hecklers, and most people, well, I haven't met anybody that does not want nuclear weapons to be gone from this world. I think the thing that they need to hear, which we tell them, is we want universal, verifiable, irreversible, time-bound elimination of nuclear weapons. So that's exactly what we were asking of North Korea, right? Except that we weren't going to reciprocate. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's part of it is what it is we're asking for, which is perfectly reasonable. And that all has to be negotiated. Another thing, though, is that people don't have any hope that this can happen. And a couple things I say is, one, we went from 80,000 nuclear weapons in this world to just 13,000 mostly as a result of Gorbachev and Reagan deciding to do that. So that's a lot of reduction. You know, we're down to less than 25% of what there had been. But another is, 
you can have hope by thinking about the self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe that we can get rid of nuclear weapons, you're much more likely to think in a way and act in a way towards that. Do you think that you've been having an effect? Have you seen the change happen because of your passing? I, I really love seeing the scales from the eyes of people. Maybe to some degree you had that happen to yourself by being exposed to this, but other people that you've talked to who've been changed, do you have those stories? What I have found is that people, most people are already really receptive to the messages and so it's not like we have to change them. We need to inspire them to act. And that's been happening. I'm, I'm really happy about that. So, yeah, we need to just keep doing this. And just give me a little bit of idea of where you're going from here. How long will you be going? Or is this perpetual motion that you're engaged in? I don't think so. Just because I'm not able to continue for much longer myself. It's just a lot to try to do this. So so we're going to head to Philadelphia and New York and then go up to Bath, Maine, up north of Portland, Maine, back to New York, through the Hudson River, the Erie Canal, and Oswego Canal into Lake Ontario. We're going to sail all through the Great Lakes and come out in Chicago in late September. And then either in Chicago or a little ways down the Mississippi River, We'll decide that, that's, that the Great Loop is finished and we'll put the Golden Rule on a truck, at least that's what I think we'll do, and take her back to California and then I'm going to take the winter off and I don't know what will happen after that. Well, I'm so grateful for your work and that also of Jerry Condon, your husband, Helen Jacquard, and the Veterans for Peace Golden Rule Peace Boat, just the witness you're carrying is just so wonderful. I think we're going to end out with that song. I, I'm not dissing your rendition of it, by the way, Helen. Oh, but if you have the other one queued up, please do. <laughs> That's how we're going to end this visit with the Golden Rule Peace Boat and Helen Jacquard. Thank you so much for doing the work, and I hope that your winter is also rich in addition to all the riches you've been given to the world. Thank you so much, Mark, and it was really great to talk with you. There are links to the veteransforpeace.org and to the vfpgoldenruleproject.org on northernspiritradio.org. Helen Jacquard had to head promptly back to some duties, but she left us with a request that I share two songs written about the Golden Rule. Both linked songs are on their website and on ours. We'll start with The Ballad of the Golden Rule by Mike Stern. This one sung by Mike on the boat as it sailed by the Bangor Trident Nuclear Submarine Missile Base on August 9th, 2016, the anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki. Here's the live recording. set sail in 58 we'd all end up in jail and called worse than fool for sailing on the gold from San Pedro we headed west on waves of a 
peaceful protest. Trimmed our sail to the wind. I pray the bomb would not be used again. Okay, you see Bluey Delta yep. up there. That's Echo. Delta is uh, just off the starboard bow. Yeah, that's where the we. Golden are. Rule. Yeah. The Golden Rule. The Golden Rule. The words that we had learned in Sunday school. Doing to others as you would have them do. It's up to you Do unto as you would have them do Do unto others as you Would have them do unto you Come on Then called worse than fool for sailing on the Phoenix and on the Golden Rule. It's up to me. It's up to you. Do unto as you would have them do. From Mike Stern and his song, The Ballad of the Golden Rule, we'll go straight to a song by the wonderful David Rovix. It's called The Golden Rule. Enjoy it and help it energize your work to heal the world. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. Here's David Rovix. Society of friends. Like him, 
they believe the means must match the ends. He resigned from the Navy, for he would be no one's tool who did not believe in the golden rule. You'd do unto others as he'd have them do unto you, the golden rule. Golden rule. What do you do when you join the opposition? You collected signatures, sent in the petitions. Sometimes you must bear witness. You can't just burn the fuel. So Albert. And his comrades set out on the golden rule. You do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The golden rule. The golden rule. People traveled across the ocean. They searched in vain to find remedies for the scars from the radiation rain. Every week a new explosion in this planetary duel to test weapons of mass destruction. Enter the golden rule. They were arrested in Hawaii, at least this particular crew. The Hiroshima Phoenix was the first boat to make it through. Publicize the tests that were unraveling the spool And to introduce the golden rule Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you The golden rule The golden rule Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you golden rule golden rule the theme music for this program is turning of the world performed by sarah thompson check out all things spirit in action on northern spirit radio org guests links stations and a place for your feedback suggestions and support thanks for listening i'm mark helps and i hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light this is spirit in action Our lives will feel the echo of our